0: We've been doing a series of lessons entitled Discovering the Mission of God. And we're in the third part of it, which has been a focus on the gospel. How does the mission of God play itself out in the gospel? And, and I want to remind you what the word gospel means. It simply means good news. I mean, when we talk about preaching the gospel, we're simply saying to the, good, to the world there's good news. And in this case, it's good news that changes the world and people's lives in particular narrowed down to one word Jesus. He's coming to the world. He's changed the world and he can change your life if you'll only allow him to do so. And we're in the second part of looking at the gospel and it's a part we call the response. You know anytime we hear news whether it's good news or bad news we respond to it. We all do. I still remember 9-11. Uh, You probably remember what you were doing that day. John Micah and I were actually preparing for a funeral. Oldest member at the Northside Church of Christ had passed away. And we were getting ready for that funeral that morning. And June, as I was getting dressed at the house, she said, a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. And I looked on the television, saw some smoke coming out, assumed it was a small plane, didn't think anything of it. I mean, I thought, well, that's odd, but I didn't think a lot of it. On the way to the church building, I was listening to the radio. Second plane crashed into the other world trade center. By then, I'm thinking, whoa, what in the world's going on? We get to the church building, we turn on the television, news all at once, Everybody showing news as the next building was the Pentagon. And we're like, what is happening At the same time, trying to get ready for a funeral and thinking, what a tragedy that here is this dear sister who's been so involved in the church and so beneficial for the kingdom of God and now her day will always be overshadowed by what happened on 9-11. Well, whether it's bad news, as it was in that case, or good news, we all respond to it. Now, how do we respond to the good news about Jesus? And last week, we began by talking about you have to decide whether or not you're going to believe it or not. I mean, it begins with that, with that question. Are you going to believe this news about Jesus of Nazareth? Is he the son of God? Did he die on the cross? Was he physically raised on the third day? Every one of us in here have to answer that question in our own minds. And we do it either intentionally or we do it unintentionally. That word believe is kind of bigger than just believing the facts. It it, it can be translated belief, faith, faithfulness, loyalty. I really like that last word when it comes to how we, in a saving way, respond to that. And we talked about the three characteristics of saving faith last week. It's a belief in the facts about Jesus, and then it's a trust in the saving work of Jesus, which then leads to an obedient response on our part. That's what makes faith a saving faith. But if you go back and look at the same text, you'll find that at the beginning of that text, right before it says believe, he uses another word, repent. This is Jesus. Repent and believe the good news, the gospel. Now, I got to be honest with you, I don't like the word repent. Repent's like the word baptism. It's a religious word. We, We don't use it out in public very much. I mean, when was the last time? You know, you went out to eat somewhere and came home and said, man, I sure repent of eating all those ribs tonight. Right? I mean, we don't use that terminology. Regret? Yes. Repent? Probably not. You know, yeah, I really repent of doing that. Or, you know, or or you go to see a movie you thought was a good movie. ends up being a bad movie. Not even worth spending money. Boy, I, I repent of spending that money. No, we don't use the term. And so... We're going to talk about repentance, but I want to define it for us to help us understand it a little bit better. It means to change the way you think or act, change your heart and your lives, to be sorry for your sins and turn from them. And by the way, these are all translations of that word repent from other English translations of the Bible. In other words, they too think repent really doesn't communicate what you know, the world needs to hear today. And so they translate it, and the, these are just three examples of a multitude of ways of translating it. The problem, at least from my personal experience, I can't speak for you, is that growing up in the church, I always saw repentance as being focused on sin. I mean, that was just, you've got to repent of your sins. And so we, 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 you know, zeroed in on that aspect of this word. But if you begin to read in your Bible, you find that that word is actually a much bigger word, much broader word. It has a lot more meaning to it than just a focus on sin in my life or in your life. I mean, it's like faith. Faith is multifaceted. We looked at that last week. You can believe facts without believing in a particular situation or a particular person. And the same is true of this word repentance. The original word itself in the Greek is metanoia. That's the noun form of it that we translate as repentance. Uh, you have a verb as well, metanoeo, which we translate to repent. So you have a verb, you have a noun, very much like ours. You can see the spelling, very similar to one another. But if you break the word up, It's actually a compound word. I don't know, how many of y'all have stock in Meta now? How many of you have stock in Facebook? Okay, if you have Facebook, you have Meta. You know, they've changed. Meta now is a big company uh, on the stock market. Meta literally means to change. Now, there are other meanings to it, like so many other words in English. But the Greek word noia has to do with the mind. And so you have Meta. Noia, which literally means a change of the mind or a change of thinking. And it's that meaning that that really is the focus of what the writers of the New Testament are talking about. Luke chapter 13. Jesus is in Jerusalem. And people begin to tell him about something Pontius Pilate had done. Pilate had slain some Galileans who were worshipping at the temple. I don't know if a riot had ensued. We really don't know the historical data behind it. But Pilate had moved in with his troops. He had killed these worshipers and mingled their blood with the blood of the sacrifices they were making. They tell Jesus about that and he says, Do you really think they were greater sinners than, than you are? And then he responds by saying, I tell you, no, they're not. And then he focuses on something that when I was a teenager, I thought had to do with sin. But unless you repent, unless you repent of your sins, you'll perish. But in reality, what Jesus is talking about here is actually a point of view of who Israel is. You see, at this time, you had two competing thoughts of the kingdom of God. Everybody in Israel believed God was setting up his kingdom. Everybody. Daniel chapter 2 had predicted it. But you had two competing messages. Jesus' message was, I am the Messiah. I'm establishing the kingdom of God. And if you want to understand it, you need to follow me. The Jewish leadership said, no, we are the ones who are going to lead in establishing this. When the true militaristic Messiah comes, we drive out the Romans, we reestablish David's throne, and we conquer the world. And so Jesus says, you've got a choice. But if you keep thinking that way, then guess what's going to happen? Rome's going to come in here and wipe you out. When he says you're going to perish, he's not talking about just literally your soul's going to perish. He's talking about everything about you. Your life's going to be destroyed. And guess what? Forty years later, it happened just like Jesus predicted. They chose the militaristic path, and Rome came in and crushed them. They perished. And so sometimes it has to do with kind of this philosophy. Sometimes it has to do with sin. Pentecost. We looked at it briefly last week. When the people heard that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord of the universe, they cried out to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? And Peter's response is, boy, you better change. You better change how you think about Jesus, and you better change about what you just did to him, which is to crucify him. So there you get a little bit more narrow focus toward that sinful aspect. Turn over to Acts 17. And by the way, you may notice I'm spending a lot of time in Luke and Acts. Luke and Acts say more about repentance than any other writers of the New Testament. In fact, half, almost half of all references to repent, repentance, comes through Luke's writings. So we'll be noticing that today. But this is Acts 17. Paul's on Mars Hill. He's speaking to the Athenians, pagans, polytheists, people who worship Zeus, Poseidon. Mercury some of the Egyptian gods and goddesses and basically what you have here is Paul saying listen The God I want to speak to you is the God you call the unknown God and he's the creator of the heavens and the earth And this ignorance that you have of him God in the past overlooked it He acknowledged that you Gentiles would be ignorant about him because he was working through Israel and Israel had failed unfortunately as a light to the nations But notice what Paul says now. But now he's commanding everyone, everywhere. Polytheism no longer works. And so you've got to repent of this belief in these Greek or these Roman or these Egyptian gods and you've got to come to the one true God who has shown himself through Israel and more specifically in one called Jesus of Nazareth. Much broader repentance mentioned here. Acts 3, once again, Luke's writings, probably gives as good a definition as any of them by linking two synonymous Greek words. Taking that word metadonoeo and and combining it with anastrepho. And it's translated this way, repent then and turn to God. Here's Peter's second sermon. And and basically what he was saying is that what God is calling all of us to do, well, here's another translation, name of God translation. Change the way you think and act, and then change the direction you're going in. And that's what repentance is. It's when we begin to change the way we think, which produces a change in the way we act, And then we literally take the necessary steps to go a completely different direction with our lives. You know, one of the things that we like to say here at Hendersonville is come join the journey with us. Come and join the journey. And what we mean by that is I don't care where you are. We don't care where you are. You may be someone who you don't even know if there is a God. You may have been struggling with that question. And it's a fair question to struggle with. And so you may be thinking, I don't know if there is a God. Could you help us? We'd love for you to come and join the journey with us and let us try to. Let us at least share with you why we believe in God. Just last week, I sat down with a couple and I said, let me explain to you why I believe in the God of the Bible. Sometimes we need to help people on that part of their journey. You may be here from a different faith background. I mean, you may have grown up Roman Catholic. You may have grown up Presbyterian. You may have grown up, I mean, just fill in the blank. And you may be wondering, why do the churches of Christ do this? And why do y'all believe that? Come and join the journey with us. Now, let me just go ahead and warn you. The problem with those of us in the churches of Christ is that if you've got 15 preachers together, you've got 16 different opinions about something. That's just the way we are. I mean, we all kind of look at it and come from different angles and different directions. But here's what I love about Churches of Christ. We believe in the Bible as the Word of God, and we believe that it's to guide us in our lives. And I love our commitment to the text. And you just may be someone struggling in your life. Marriage may be messed up. May have just lost your job. You may be wondering, I don't know where to go in life. I mean, you're just kind of lost, but it's not lost in the sense of being aware of your sinfulness as being lost in what God is doing or wants to do in your life. Come and join the journey with us. Because, you see, repentance is all tied up in that journey. Here's kind of the way I like to describe it. It is a lifetime reorientation. A lifetime. Notice the phrase there. Repentance is not a one-time act. A lot of times we think, well, you know, the old five steps, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. Once you're baptized, hey, your repentance is done. Oh, no, 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 no. Your repentance is just starting. Repentance is a lifetime reorientation and restoration of a person back into the image of God. One of the most important passages in all the Bible is Genesis 1.26. If you've not underlined it, if you've not memorized it, you need to do it because it tells you, why God created you, why he created me. I mean, here he is saying to the Godhead, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. Oh, King James Version says, have dominion. You see, God created us to be his image bearers. Me, you, I mean, to, to look like God. To act like God. And by the way, to rule over His creation. Now, all you got to do is get up in the morning and look at the news, and you know we've done a really bad job of that last one. Well, we've actually done a pretty bad job of all three of them. I mean, one of the mistakes I make most mornings is when I get up, I grab my cell phone because I want to see what happened overnight. And by the time I go through my, my newscast, I am so depressed. I'm like, can anything else be worse than what's happened, you know? And, and so the awareness we have that the world has really gone off the rails. I mean, when, when, when an 18-year-old kid walks into an elementary school and does what he does, when, when, when a kid walks into a grocery store in New York and just begins shooting people at random, When people get in a car and just drive it into a crowd of people or fly an airplane into the World Trade Center, it doesn't take much to realize that our world is way off from where God intended it to be. And it's repentance, one life at a time, that begins to turn that around. And I have to focus on Les Chapman. Getting my life reoriented into one of the most important characteristics. We'll look at that here in a second. Here's one of the questions that oftentimes comes up. Which comes first? Repentance or faith? My best friend when I was in high school was Southern Baptist. And we would talk about faith all the time. I went to his church. He came to my church. And, and so we were constantly debating, you know, things about how do we respond to God. And, and I remember him saying, repentance less comes first. And I'd say, no, no, no. Faith comes first. And, and, and he would quote Mark chapter 1, repent and believe. I would quote the five steps, right? <laughs> that really backed it up. You know, hear, believe, repent. See, believe comes first before repentance. The truth is... It depends on where you are in your journey as to which comes first. You see, repentance may need to begin with, first of all, your view of God and Jesus. In other words, if you don't believe in God or you're doubtful of God, then you've got to begin thinking about, okay, what do I really believe about God? Which means you've got to change your mind about God. Let me give you an illustration. I, I don't know how many of you know about the Mormon faith. Uh, if you've ever met Mormon people, they're usually incredibly good, wonderful people. Uh, they love their families. They, they, they believe passionately. And they give, all of them, uh, both men and women, give the first two years after they graduate high school to go and do mission work. You've seen them. I mean, they're on their bicycles. They've got their white shirts. They've got their ties. They come knock on the doors sharing the Mormon faith. And one of the big debates that's oftentimes we have in America is, are Mormons Christian? Are they a part of mainline Christianity? And so I still remember two Mormons coming to our house several years ago, knocked on the door, I went to the door, invited them in. We sat down, we began to talk. I informed them that I was a preacher in churches of Christ. And so they asked me the typical question I get like that, do you think we're going to be saved? I love the way everybody begins with that question. You know, your church cries, so do you believe we're going to be saved? And my response was a response I give to everybody. I hope so. That's what I hope. I hope more than anything in the world, God wants everyone saved. But I, I struggle with some of your beliefs. To which the two Mormon elders, one about 18, one about 19. I love that phrase, elders, at that age. And, 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 and they said, okay, what about our belief do you struggle with? And I said, well, your view of God. And he said, what do you mean, our view of God? And and if you do any research on Mormonism, Mormons believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They believe in the Trinity. They believe in baptism for the remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. You think, wow, that sounds like mainline Christianity, just like we do. Except when they say we also believe that God has a wife who rules with him in the heavens, and that God and his wife were previous to becoming God, were human beings just like you and me. At which point you go, excuse me? In fact, it was so funny, these Mormon elders, I asked, I told them that. I said, I just really struggle with your belief that God has a wife. And the youngest one said, we don't believe God has a wife. And I said, yeah, you do. And he turned to his older companion and he said, we don't believe that, do we? And he said, yes, we do. (laughs) To which his response, which is classic, was, when did we start believing that? And the answer is always. And so you have that particular belief. How many of you saw where Jim Seals died this last week? So, several. You know, I'm seeing all older people raise their hands. You know. Jim Seals was a part of the group Seals and Croft of the 70s and early 80s. Songs like Summer Breeze makes you feel fine, you know. And and Jim Seals passed away, 80 years old this last week. What was fascinating about Jim Seals and Croft as well is that both of them were members of the Baha'i faith. Now, if you're not familiar with the Baha'i faith, it's not a very common religion, about 6 million in the world. It's based in Haffa, Israel, of all crazy places. Rodney, right? I've been you know, right by their headquarters there in, in Israel. But the Baha'i faith originated back in the early 1800s from a quote unquote prophet out of Iran, who basically came to the view that there is but one God, which we would all celebrate, absolutely, but he said that one God has revealed himself to mankind through different prophets at different times and at different places. So this one God's revealed himself to the Japanese through Shintoism, to to, to India and to China through Buddha. Uh, through the Middle East, through Muhammad, through Jews in Abraham, through Christians in Jesus, but that all of those are simple prophets of the one true God and that there's really no difference between the faiths. All of them lead us to God. I love Seals and Croft's music. I would not agree with their view of God. And if I could have sat down and talked with them, and by the way, I didn't realize it, Jim Seals lived here in Nashville. At a home here in Nashville. But I would have loved said to them, I think you need to rethink your view of God. And so sometimes it begins with changing the way people think about God. And more specifically about Jesus. And then it also deals with how you see sin and sin habits in your life. I mean, that, that, that becomes the one that challenges those of us who are in this room. We're here because we probably already have our view of God down pat pretty well. Maybe some questions, but pretty well going in the right direction. But sin and sin habits may still be a struggle. In fact, will always be a struggle in our lives. The passage that Tony led us in a few moments ago. Godly sorrow brings repentance. Once you realize who Jesus is, what he did for you on the cross, if you have the correct response, it's going to create this godly sorrow that leads to salvation. If it doesn't, it's going to create worldly sorrow that brings death. Let me give you two illustrations. Peter and Judas. Both of them betrayed the Lord. Judas led the soldiers who had arrested him, 30 pieces of silver. Peter denied the Lord three times. They even knew him. However, Peter goes out and weeps with godly sorrow, which leads to his restoration of Jesus and his preaching the first gospel sermon. Judas leads to regret, worldly sorrow, that leads to his committing suicide. You see the two so brilliantly illustrated in two of Jesus' closest followers. And so you see Paul describing his preaching, once again, in, in Luke's writings of Acts. He says, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentile world, which of course has trickled down to us. I preach that they should repent. Turn to God, same language Peter used in Acts chapter 3, and then demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. When you change the way you think, you change the way you live. Which leads to our third one, which is your continuing transformation into the image of Jesus. Genesis 1.26, created in the image. Genesis 3, corrupted by sin. You then turn to the New Testament, to the cross, and you have God re, tr- reforming us, transforming us, renewing us back into this image which is best depicted in Jesus. This is my favorite verse in the Bible. has been for years and years and years. Because it's the verse that reminds me why God called me with the gospel to begin with. Notice the language. For those God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among brothers and sisters. Now, you may be thinking, less, you've not done a good job in following your own verse. And you would be right to a degree. This transformation process is a tough one. Paul would go on... Four chapters later in chapter 12, he says, listen, this not being conformed to the world but being transformed has to do with with changing the way you think. It's renewal of the mind. And so you have to start thinking the way God thinks and, and looking at the world at the way God looks at the world. And he goes on and he says, by the way, if you're able to do that, if you're able to make that transformation, then you figure out God's will for your life. And so you turn over to passages like Ephesians. I love Ephesians because of the way Paul illustrates this process so brilliantly. Notice the first thing he says. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as Gentiles live. That's what we are. And he's simply saying you can't live like people in the world in the futility of their thinking. What makes you shoot up a grocery store is your thinking's messed up. What makes you shoot up an elementary school, your thinking's messed up. What makes you go crazy at someone who is not driving like you think they ought to be driving? Boy, does that sound familiar to me, is your thinking's messed up. That, however, is not the way you learned when you heard about Christ. In other words, when you started learning about Jesus something begins to take place in the way you think. And I love the way he illustrates it. He says, you were taught, notice the phrase there, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. Old self, simply, that that language, by the way, put off, is like taking off clothes. I mean, a couple of mornings ago, I got up, I showered, Uh, I don't know why I got up and showered before I thought about what I was going to do in the day, but I got up and showered, and June looked at me as I came in there, and she said, what are you doing this morning? I said, I think I'm going to mow the yard. Isn't that a brilliant thought? Shower, then mow. Maybe you ought to mow and then shower. you know. And so my thinking was kind of goofed up. But, But, of course, as soon as I mowed, I went off and got rid of the sweaty, nasty clothes and showered a second time. Take off the old self. But then notice the language and put on the new self. Notice how you get there. Look at the phrase, right smack in the middle, which is made new in the attitude of your minds. Reprogramming, reprogramming, reorienting, thinking in a different way than you've always thought. That's how it all begins. I want to use a simple illustration. Paul uses multiple illustrations right after this whole comment here. I want to use a simple one because I think it helps us understand it. Real simple, but it's a simple one. Notice what he says, for instance. For instance, example, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Now, the NIV translates it unwholesome. These are other translations, corrupt, foul, dirty, bad, harmful, evil. When I was in Mississippi, ours was, don't cuss. Okay, I don't know if y'all ever heard that, don't cuss. Now, it's it's more than using bad words. It's slander, it's gossip, it's it's, it's, it's angry words. All of those are involved in this phrase. But here's Paul saying, listen, if you're going to repent and follow Jesus, it's going to show by, by the way you talk. Now, you think about the world we live in today. Why do people talk the way they talk? And the answer is real simple. They grow up in a family where they have parents who talk in a way that they shouldn't talk. I mean, if if you want your eyes open, go to our public schools. Probably go to our private schools as well. And listen to kids in elementary school. June works in the school system. And you'd be amazed at what she's been called at times. By little b, young kids. I mean, if I'd called one of, my, one of my people at school, one of my teachers, one of the assistants, June's not a teacher, she works in the office there. But if I'd called somebody what June's been called, I mean, I know what would have happened to me. They would have hustled me down to the office of Ms. Neighbors, and Ms. Neighbors would have got out the dreaded, how many of y'all ever heard of this, electric paddle? I believe that because they told me she had one. My dad just had a regular paddle. Ms. neighbors had an electric paddle. That had to be horrible. You know, I mean, we live in a world where kids grow up with this. They see it on television. I mean, let's face it, there's no family hour anymore. There's no time where you can go and watch TV and not hear just constant foul language of all kinds being spoken. And yet what Paul says is, as Christians, we began to transform that. I've been around people where every other word was a foul word. It's who they were. But it wasn't who God wanted them to be. And God forbid that we as Christians look at foul words as if something we too can engage in and not dishonor Jesus our Lord. We need to be real careful of these things. Notice, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Y'all, we all learned it as kids. You remember, grandmother? If you can't say good about somebody, what? Don't say nothing at all. I believe that's a double negative, but that's okay. That's the way my grandmother would have spoken. Will we ever overcome sin in our lives completely in this world? No. Mine's a constant battle, constant reorientation constant needing to think about how I think if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Truth's not in us. But he goes on and he says, but if you confess your sins, he's faithful, he's just, he'll forgive and he purifies. Through the Spirit, he keeps that purification process going. As long as I'm like, God, I don't want to be unlike Jesus. I want to reflect him in the world. Help me to do that. And God says, I'll do it. Jesus says, I'll do it. And, and, and this is the verse I love the most. This is a passage out of 1 John chapter 2. It's from the voice translation. So some of you know I love parts and, bits and parts of the voice translation. This is one of my love. You're my little children, so I'm writing these things to you to help you avoid sin. Here's John saying, we don't want to sin. I'm writing so that I can help you avoid sin. Which, by the way, has to do with love in his particular book. But notice what he says, if however any believer does sin, we have a high-powered defense lawyer. Jesus the anointed, Jesus the king, the righteous one. And guess what? He's there beside God at his right hand saying, Father, that's my brother, that's my sister, and I'm still working on them. And that is what gives me hope. I don't know where you are in your spiritual life today. It may be that you're still struggling about believing in God. I would hope that you would learn to believe in God and in His Son, Jesus Christ. It may be that you're still struggling with a sin, that, boy, you're having a hard time getting rid of. It begins with changing the way you think. You can't overcome it by just trying to change what you do. You've got to change how you think. And that comes through the help of the Holy Spirit and God's Word. And maybe you've never been baptized. If you've never been baptized, what a wonderful day to do it today, right now. You can do that. If we need to help you, please come and let us know how we can do that right now as we stand.